Have you ever noticed that sin has left us uh, very unsatisfied? Sin has left us very, very unsatisfied. That naturally, we're just really discontent. Am I the only one? Right? Um, that we don't ever seem to have enough clothes in the closet. Uh, we don't ever seem to have enough money in the bank account. Um, I'm the type of person, I'm about to confess this and I'm embarrassed to do it, that can be just starving with hunger and can spend countless minutes looking through our cabinets and refrigerator that have food in them, but we'll say, I'm just not going to eat. We just don't have anything I want. Hmm. So you've got this stuff in the cabinets, you've got this stuff in the refrigerator, and yet for many of us, um, we're unsatisfied with what we have. We're unsatisfied with our bodies. We're unsatisfied with the husband or the wife that we have. We're unsatisfied with our kids. We're discontent with all of those things. Am I the only person who can get really up, worked up for a, a birthday party, for a holiday, for a vacation, um, for Christmas only to the moment you realize it's over with, that it's, eh, hmm. It just didn't live up to its expectations. Have you ever noticed that a lot of things are not as good as they are marketed? Like for months, I've been having one of those electro things that you hook up to your abs. Have y'all seen those things? You hook it up to a battery pack, and it hooks to your, it like sticks to your abs, and it makes you to have abs. I've been wearing it for the last three months every Sunday. I've got it on right now. And yet I'm unsatisfied with what is happening. None of you have noticed my abs through my shirt. I don't know what's up. Okay? We just become really unsatisfied, discontent. Often those of us who are parents, we can see this illustrated in our kids. That no matter what we try to come up with, the biggest plan, the best thing, we're wanting to serve our kids only for us to give it to them or to do it with them and they're never satisfied with it. They're never content with it. Um, we have this thing that's driving us crazy right now with Ava. I'm about to love her into eternity quick. And I told her the other day she better stop and never say it to me again because I'll ask her a question, and she goes, eh, eh, it's eh. What do you think about that? Eh. I'm like, oh, if you do it again, you're going to meet Jesus, Right? You're going to, eh, it's, eh, don't, eh, me. I just spent blah, blah, blah for that. Or we just went and did blah, blah, blah. I mean, our children are the kind of kids. we got several families at Disney's today, which I believe is the happiest place on earth, just saying, um, and I'm 40. Um, we've got people at Disney today, and Ava is the type of kid that you take to Disney, and it's like 10 o'clock in the morning, and she's having the best time. She's laughing, smiling. She's got Mickey ears. We're eating a Dole Whip, a turkey leg, both hands. We're double dipping the turkey leg in the Dole Whip. It's a phenomenal experience. But by 10 o'clock, she says, what are we going to do tomorrow? I'm like, we're at the greatest place on the planet. Who cares? Pray Jesus comes at the end of the fireworks show tonight. That's what you need to do because it don't get any better on this planet than the happiest place on earth, the land of the rat and overpriced charges that we continue to delve out because it's awesome, right? 
we, instead of enjoying the moment, are often wondering what is next, what is next, what is next, what is next. And we really quickly begin to understand that we see this in all of our life, that when we do get some money, still not enough, didn't service. That if you're struggling with your weight and all of a sudden you lose weight, that what you thought you would feel like in losing that weight, guess what? Still didn't meet all of your expectations. Why? Because none of those things ultimately change our hearts. The promotion doesn't. The getting healthy doesn't. Uh, None of these things really satisfy. They do not live up to the commercial. And so the question today that we're going to ask is this. Are you satisfied with Jesus? Do you look to Jesus for your hope? Do you look to Jesus for your security? Do you look to Jesus for your salvation? Is it truly all about Jesus? Can we say like we sing in a song that Christ is enough? Are you satisfied with Jesus? And so to do that, we're actually going to go Old Testament today because Chris Dindy put me in a headlock and said if I didn't preach on the Old Testament, then I wouldn't be a good pastor. Here you go. All right. I'm here to serve you. All right. Book of Numbers. It is in there, I promise. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. Flip there with me. I want you to see this. I'm going to preach the entire Bible in about two hours, okay? So hold tight with me, all right? The Book of Numbers. Now, if you're new to Bible reading, I don't know a devotional on the Book of Numbers. When you start out in the Book of Numbers, it is literally a Book of Numbers, hence its name. They're counting all of the Israelites in the first few chapters. I'm going to tell you, if you're doing a yearly Bible reading plan, or if you occasionally just happen to come across a Bible verse, you call it a devotional, and you land in the book of Numbers, the first few chapters are doozies, okay? Because it's a census that's taking place. But once you see all of that, and you get, and you understand why they're doing the census, it's actually really cool. I wish I had time to nerd out on it and show you some pictures of what it looked like, because... It all points to Jesus, okay? But I don't have time to do that today. My wife told me I have to preach quickly, all right? So we see inside of the book of Numbers that there's a lot going on. So let me set the context for you of what is happening here. The Israelites have been oppressed. They've been in in slavery for 400 years, all right? They've been in slavery for 400 years, and and God determines that he is going to use an earthly leader named Moses and a lot of providential things to let his people out of Egypt, all right? That they don't need to be in bondage anymore, that they don't need to be in slavery anymore. We're talking about whips, chains, lack of food, hard, laborious, laborious work all day, every day, under a, a pagan king named a pharaoh, all right? And so God de- determines that he is going to come back to the covenant that ma- he made with Father Abraham. You know, he had many sons. And God is going to come back to that covenant and that he is going to set them free. He's going to lead them out of this bondage that has been their legacy for four hundred years. And so if you've seen Charlton Heston, if you've seen the Prince of Egypt, they do a quasi job of doing that. It's not the same as the Christian Bale Exodus movie, just so you know. There's some major differences there. But we see inside of this 
um, picture inside of the scripture that God does that very thing. That he lets them go through a, a huge series of events that I would encourage you to read. Now, while on the journey to the promised land, to the God that, that God has pr- promised them, it's a land flowing with milk and honey, they won't be in under bondage, they'll be free to, to live and to grow and to worship God as they see fit. But it doesn't take very long for them to get away from Egypt. That What do the people start doing? They start complaining. They start complaining. They start complaining about how difficult the journey is. They start complaining about the types of, uh, or the kind of water that they have, or the type of food they have, and they even begin to complain about leadership. So don't ever do that toward me. God's going to get you. He's going to hunt you down. There you go. It's a Bible verse somewhere. All right? So they begin to complain about these things, even to the point where they're saying, we wish that we had never left Egypt. I mean, that is a serious complaint. Like, we would rather be making bricks for pagan temples and pyramids with our feet in the muck and the mire and the hay, making bricks, getting beat down and whipped, having our women abused, having our kids taken from us, than be on a journey to the promised land, a land flowing with milk and with honey. They would rather be slaves than to have their own freedom. I guess that you could say that they were not satisfied. They were not satisfied. They were not satisfied with God's plan. They were not satisfied with God's water and his food. He was not satisfied with God's leadership. You can read about this even up until the book of Numbers. What's crazy about this is even Moses' own brother and sister began to oppose Moses publicly, even to the point that they were wanting to overthrow Moses, appoint a, a new leader, and head back to Egypt. All right? Again, this does not make God very happy. He continues to be patient with them. He continues to provide water. He continues to provide the food that they need. He continues to uh, provide them with some sort of biblical leadership, godly leadership in Moses and in Aaron. And, and, And we see this picture that God becomes very angry at their lack of worship, at their lack of appreciation, at their lack of obedience. So in an act of just wrath upon the people, he disciplines them. We're talking upwards to potentially millions of people. Definitely hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people, are now going through the desert. Now this journey from Egypt to the promised land, if you look at it on a map, should only take two weeks. All right? Two weeks. But because they're unsatisfied with God... He disciplines them, he punishes them, and makes them walk around in the desert for 40 years. God takes this, this lack of being satisfied, this lack of being appreciative toward him 
and what he has done for them, he takes that very serious to the point where he says this, that he's, he's practically going to kill off all of the adults and he's going to start over with the people of God with their children. Because they'll get it. And that's exactly what God does. You would think by this act that God, that they would turn from their evil ways and worship God. And they do. For a moment. Guess what they do again? They rebel against God. He disciplines, and then they come back. They rebel. He disciplines. They come back. All these sorts of things. Rebellion after rebellion, complaint after complaint. We are thirsty. We can't believe you brought us out of Egypt. Even Moses becomes angry at God at one point, or he becomes angry with the people. He does not trust God's plan and God's promises. And so in an act of rebellion, Moses disobeys God, and Moses himself will not be allowed to see the promised land as well. So that is the context in and of itself. That's like the 35,000 foot view of what is happening inside of the book of Numbers. And we get to this really interesting story in the book of Numbers, chapter 21. Read along with me, verses 4 through 8, 4 through 9. From Mount Hor they set out, by the way, to the Red Sea, to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way, go figure. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of the land to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many of the people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he takes away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten... When he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Crazy story, right? So you get what's taking place here. Again, unsatisfied, complaining against God. They're complaining against the, mem- the, the, the leadership. They're, they're complaining against the food. I mean, this is, God makes like magical frosted flakes, some sort of thing called manna, fall from the ceiling or fall from the sky every day to rub from the ground. Not sure how he did it, but it provided a grain, a bread-like substance to, to satisfy their hunger need, not their want. They didn't have to go hunt for this, they literally just had to go out every morning and gather it. But like me, they're complaining about their options. They get tired of their options. I've got a friend who can practically, he gets on these kicks with restaurants, and he can eat at that restaurant like every day. That would drive me nuts. I like variety, right? I like variety in my diet. And yet the people get 
They're wanting variety, and they're getting really tired of God and what God has done. And so they're complaining God takes this serious. And so to discipline them, for them to realize that it is only about Jesus, that it is only about God, that, he, that every one of them must come back to God, what does God do? He sends venomous snakes. All right? Now, it was at this point in the sermon that um, I really considered showing several pictures of snakes. Um, But my wife, we're about to spend some time together this week. I'm off. She is off. And so she is deathly afraid of snakes. If my father-in-law was here, he would probably try to shoot the screen. He's that scared of snakes. My brother-in-law, Todd, deathly afraid of snakes. And I think it's interesting that we see all the way back in Genesis what is the natural thing that happens between God essentially makes um, the serpent, right? He's a lizard sort of thing. God curses him, rips off his arms and legs, makes him slither on the ground. And pretty much people have been scared to death of snakes, right? King Kong could be busting up in this place. and be like, let's get a selfie, right? A small snake run through this room, though, and many of you are losing your minds, all right? Losing your mind. When I first met Laura, she could not even look at a picture of a snake. I could take a napkin with a pencil and draw a stick snake, and she would freak out. That's how scared my girl was of snakes. And notice, who sent these snakes? God did. God sent snakes not only just to scare them, but to bite them. All right? The Bible tells us here in this passage that they die from these bites. Okay, this is a serious, serious disciplinary action that's taking place. Okay? Now, the serpent was a religious figure in both the, the Egyptians and the Canaanites. So when Moses, if you remember back in the book of Exodus, he has this kind of showdown uh, with the Egyptian kind of witch doctors, and he throws down his staff, and it becomes a snake, right? And somehow... Um, the Egyptian pagan worshipers, they throw down theirs, and it, uh, it turns into two snakes. But what was really cool in this story is that God's snake kind of like gobbles up and eats the pagan snakes. All right? See, the Bible is super cool. Got great stories, especially for young boys. All right? And we're like, oh, that is so cool. All right? So we, we see in that, in that story between Moses and the pagan kind of witch doctors, um, we, we see what is God doing. God is showing his superiority over all of these beasts. Well, in, in this story, God is once again showing his superiority. He's also showing his, his authority. But God is also showing two other things. God is putting his wrath on display. And he's also putting his provision on display. See, God would have been right to simply kill every last one of the Israelites. It is right for God to do that. 
It's hard for us to understand that because in some way, you and I believe that we're good in our hearts, that we deserve to be saved, that we deserve prosperity, that we deserve these gifts from God. But God is so not like us. God is so holy. He is so glorious. He is so right. He is so who He is. And we are so not like that, that in His very presence, we should be killed instantly. And yet, what does God do? He, in the midst of singing His wrath, sending His wrath to discipline the people, to make them satisfied in Him, God also provides a way out. God, in the midst of His wrath, is also merciful. God, in the midst of His discipline, is also gracious. And so the, the people, they come to Moses and they're like, Moses, you know, our, our kids are dying, our husbands are dying, our, our wives are dying. We're dying from these venomous snakes. And I don't imagine that this is just a, a few snakes, right, hidden in a can. Whoa! All right? I'm talking about probably just gobs of snakes are killing these people. So they go to Moses and they run to Moses just frantic. Moses, you have got to do something. You have got to intercede for us. See, the leader that they had that they were complaining against, they're now running to for intercession. And what does God say to do? God says to erect a staff, and on that staff to put a bronze serpent upon it. Bronze has a color of like a reddish color. We often see inside of the Bible, and often it's known through archaeology, that in this area that they are now traveling, that there was bronze or copper, copper mines that have been found there. And so red, typically inside of the Scripture, is often an illustration of atonement. It means the covering of something. So it may be a case that that's why we have a, a bronze or a copper, uh, a brazen snake here. But God tells Moses, I want you to erect a pole on the top of that pole. I want you to wrap a snake around that. And that when anyone is bitten, all they have to do is look upon the serpent. Look upon the, the bronze serpent that is set on the pole. And if anyone looks upon it, and if they are bit and look upon the serpent on the pole, then they shall be saved. They will not die. They will not be put to death. They will not receive what they're having. So we see inside of the scripture that God sends his wrath. And in the way out, of, how does God send his wrath in this picture? He sends it through fiery serpents, venomous snakes. They believe that they may have been cobras just all over the place, biting on these people. And yet in God's wrath, he provides a way out. And he says that if you will look beyond yourself, if you will look beyond the moment, God does not say, put this salve on it, right? God doesn't say, put this butter on it. I'm so glad that God didn't say, hey, get your friend to suck the poison out, aren't you? Because you would die if I was next to you, all right? I'm so glad that God didn't say those things. But in the, get this though, he doesn't just say, before you get bit, the bite comes, the suffering comes, the pain comes, the agony comes. This is where I was also tempted to show you pictures of what it's like when people get snake bitten. But they're so gross and disgusting that I chose not to. And so God tells Moses that when you get bit, look 
to the serpent, to look to the bronze serpent. And that's what happens. From God's wrath, he provides a bridge. God provides a, a scapegoat. Um, God provides a substitute to appease his wrath. And you've got to get that picture. See, the bronze serpent was not the Savior. It did not heal them of their sin or death, but it pointed to someone who did. It pointed to God, who they forgot about, who were they complaining against, who were they unsatisfied with. It was God, and God was saying, hey, if you're going to be this way, I've got to do whatever it takes to redirect your thinking and your hearts to understand that you need to be satisfied with me. And so God uses this extreme measure in order to turn their hearts and their face to get them to look upon his provision. It was all about God. They looked past the bronze serpent to see God. That is what the purpose was. Now, during, in Judaism, there are all these books that are not found inside the Bible. Okay? They're, they're called the Apocrypha. Some of them are really fun to read. You should not get any sort of life teaching from them whatsoever. A lot of them are crazy. Again, if you're really bored, you need some good literature, I encourage the Gospel of Thomas. It's quite interesting for you to read. They have another one of those, though, that's called the Wisdom of Solomon. And in the Wisdom of Solomon, though, it does retell this story, and it gives us a little bit of, of maybe insight or, or commentary to what was happening here. And in the Wisdom of Solomon, it says this, He who turned towards it was healed. Not by what he saw, but by you, the Savior of all. So it was a shadow, it was a type, it was a billboard. This, this serpent on a pole was a billboard pointing them back to who? Pointing them back to God. And so instead of receiving the full brunt of divine wrath, they received the substitution, they were, his wrath was satisfied when they looked upon the bronze snake and saw God. All right? It's one of my favorite stories in the Scripture. But the story takes a turn. Turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Kings. So you'll work right. Right in your Bible, a couple of books, several books over. And in the book of 2 Kings, the, let me kind of give you some things of what's happening here. This is 700 years from that story I just told. Okay? 700 years from the story I just told. When we get to First and 2 Kings, those kids, guess what they did? The same things that their parents did. When we get to 2 Kings, all of those kids have entered into the promised land. By this time, David has fought Goliath. He has become king and so on. David's son, Solomon, becomes king. And he, he lives and rules being wise. This tension between being really wise and being really foolish. You'll know he's foolish by what he does next. He begins to get lots of wives. In order to make political gain with all of these pagan other rulers inside of the promised land, he begins to build partnerships with these people who worship other gods other than his God. 
And to appease that or to make it simpler, what he does is, is he begins to marry all of those other king's daughters. Well, not only does he get a, not a new wife, I think there's a total of 700 and something of them, he also begins to adopt the way that his wives worship their gods. So in the most holy city of Jerusalem, inside of the temple, in God's holy city, he's, he's orchestrated and worked all of this. He set the captives free for 400 years. They were in bondage and slavery. And now for about 700 years, they've been inside the promised land flowing with milk and honey. The Bible declares that inside of the promised land, when they first found it, that they would literally have to take a pole between two men because the grapes were so big that they could could not pack them by themselves. All of a sudden, they decide they want a king. God gives them a king, and from there on, it does not go well. As Solomon begins to allow the worship of these other gods in the holy city, he, he even uses slave labor to build the temple. He goes against everything that Deuteronomy chapter 17 tells us. And we'll quickly note that Solomon is breaking all of the guidelines that God has established for how kings are to rule and reign. Solomon begins to look more like a pagan pharaoh than a man after God's own heart like his dad, David. This sinful pagan way of living and ruling from Solomon sets a trajectory for how Israel's kings will rule and reign after him. The kings did not worship God alone. They did not rid Israel of its idols. And they were not faithful to God's covenant. The people of God, the Jewish people, the Israelites, have gone completely wayward. This is going to sound crazy to some of you, but by the time you get to 2 Kings chapter 22, verses, 20, verses 22 through 23, they don't even know where the Old Testament is. So imagine showing up here to our gathering, and we never use the Bible. And we don't even know where it is. Would we say that's pretty liberal? We say that's pretty far-fetched. Would we say that's that's way over that's way away from the plumb line from of God's created order. Can we all agree with that? I mean, it, it's finally found by King Josiah who is looking through the temple records and finally comes across a dusty scroll that is the word of God. And it's just tucked back. And he begins to read it. And he eventually repents. Some other thing, crazy things happen that we learn inside of the book of Kings. Uh, we learn about um, even a king who begins to, they begin to, to worship again these pagan gods inside of the holy temple. So imagine this morning um, that not only are we worshiping Jesus, but we're also doing child sacrifices because that's exactly what was happening inside the temple. They're killing kids in the temple of God. Anybody want to believe that's conservative biblical Christianity? <laughs> no. These people have gotten way wayward in their understanding of who God is. 
So that leads us to the text in 2 Kings chapter 18, verses 1 through 7, says this. In the third year of Hosiah, the son of Elah, king of Israel, Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he began to reign. Imagine being king of a nation at 25. And he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abby and the daughter of Zechariah, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord according to all that David his father had done. He removed the high places and broke the pillars and cut down the Asherai. And he broke into pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made, for until those days the people of Israel had made offerings to it. He trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that there was none like him among the kings of Judah after him, nor among those who were before him. For he held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept the commandments that the Lord commanded Moses. And the Lord was with him. Wherever he went out, he prospered. He rebelled against the king of Assyria and would not serve him. He struck down the Philistines as far as Gaza and the territory from watchtower to fortified city. So in chapter 18, we meet this young king of Israel. And there's something different about this young king from Israel. See, again, we see that after all of these years, for 700 years now, that the people of Israel had kept a relic. They kept that bronze statue of that snake twisted around that stick. And what did they do to it? They were worshiping the snake and the stick for 700 years years. They had twisted it with other pagan religions. Instead of worshiping God and worship, uh, as they were worshiping creation. Instead of worshiping God, what did they do? They began to worship an object. Instead of being satisfied with God, they were more satisfied with something that God could create. They did not trust God. They were not satisfied with God and with God alone. And yet there is a young man. There's a young man in his midst and God sovereignly appoints to be king. And the Bible tells us that there's some distinctive things about this young man that is very distinct than all of those other Israelites. He tells us in verse 3 that he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. That in verse 4 he removed the idols. In verse 5 that he trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel. In verse 6 that he, he held fast to the Lord. In verse 6, he said that he did not depart from him and that he kept his commandments. In verse 7, and that the Lord was with him. There's a major difference between the king Hezekiah and all of the other Israelites. See, this is our temptation. Our temptation is to not trust God. Our temptation is to worship something other than God. 
Our temptation is to fall in love, to have deep affections for something other than God. The just wrath of God was coming down on the people. Yet Hezekiah, what does he do? He looks and he trusts God. See, for Hezekiah, God was enough. The word was enough. He was satisfied in this moment with God. I once heard a pastor say this, and it's always stuck with me. He said that we've got to be careful because we as humans in our sin are always prone with taking a good thing. And we take that good thing. It is a blessing from God. And we take that good thing and we make that good thing a God thing. So God wants to give us a gift. God is not a killjoy. God is for us. God is with us. And if he is for us and with us, then who can be against us? God wants to lavish these gifts upon us. He is a good, good father. He gives to us freely. He gives to us generously. And yet our temptation is to take something that is good from God and to make it God. And anytime we take a good thing and we make it a God thing, it is always, write it down, a bad, bad thing. It's a bad thing. God sent his wrath. God sends a way out of that wrath. That is a good thing. But at the end of the day, they've made that stick and that snake a God that they're worshiping, that they're bowing down to, all the while missing God. See, brothers and sisters, we can make a God out of anything, can't we? You want to know what your God is? Where do you spend your most time, talent, and treasure? See, what's difficult for many of us is those objects that God gives us. It's not that God is handing us meth. It's not as though God is handing us Drano and saying, smell this. All right? God isn't handing us these sorts of things to punish us. No, God is, is often handing us at themselves. They are good, good gifts. But in our sin, they become a distraction. They become distorted from God's intention, original purpose. And we become more satisfied with those things than we do with godly things. When you're really struggling, what do you run to to be satisfied by? Please do not teach your kids, and I won't go too far into this this morning. I want to be careful. But please do not paint a picture inside of your home that sex is a bad thing. Sex is a good gift from God. We've just made it a God thing in this culture, which is a bad thing. God gives us things like gifts like wine. Wine is a gift from God. We see it in the Old Testament. We see it in the New Testament. We see it in the future Jerusalem. The problem is, is that we make a good thing like wine that is a gift to us. We make it a God thing. And then we say we can't live without it. What do you run to when you need to be satisfied? I'm going to find satisfaction in her. I'm going to find satisfaction in him. I'm going to find satisfaction in politics. Please don't do that. 
Blessed are the dumb. It's found nowhere in Scripture. You know what we've watched all this week, and I won't go too far into this, is a lot of dumb stuff. And yet people are putting their hopes in it. Putting their hopes in politics. Putting their hopes in politicians. Putting their hopes in presidents. Be Christian. Don't be a part of a party. There you go. That's free. That's our temptation. Is instead of hunger and thirsting for God, instead of longing for God, instead of Him being enough, and I've said all of that to say this. Turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John. Again, the best commentary on the Old Testament is the New Testament. If you want to understand the Old Testament, you've got to understand the New Testament. And I love it when Jesus gives us his own commentary to those things. I want you to turn to the Gospel of John. Gospel of John chapter 3. Right? I'm about to say your, your, your Bible verse that you know. All right? Been to a football game, wrestling match or wrestling, as we like to call it in the South. There's a man. There's a man that comes to Jesus. A man named Nicodemus. And Nicodemus comes to Jesus under the cover of night. Nicodemus is a, a member of what's called the Sanhedrin. It's the, it's the governing body of the Jewish people. All right, so this guy is in the cabinet. All right, he's, he's orchestrating a lot of things that are happening with inside of Judaism, inside of Jerusalem. He would have been well-known, he would have been powerful, he would have been wealthy, and he was a teacher and, le and leader inside of Jewish life. People would have known who Nicodemus was. That's why Nick comes at night in order to speak with Jesus under the cover of darkness because he does not want people to see what he is doing in the conversation that he is having with Jesus. Let's read our Bibles. In John chapter 3, verses 1 through 14, it says this, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The man came to Jesus by night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these things that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can it be how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound. But if you do not know where it comes from or where it goes, so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I had told you earthly things that you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Knowing no one has ascended into heaven 
except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Get this, verse 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Nicodemus was religious. He worshiped God's ways of salvation. But Nicodemus missed the way of salvation. See, Nicodemus was caught up in religious activity. He was caught up in the temple. He was caught up in prestige of his position, yet he missed the Savior. See, brothers and sisters, if you miss Jesus, you have missed God. And Jesus uses an illustration that Nicodemus would have had memorized by heart, the story of the bronze serpent. Jesus interprets an ancient story revealing that that story was really about Jesus, that that story was ultimately pointing to Jesus, that Jesus is the one that must be high and lifted up on the cross, that Jesus is the one that must be lifted up from the grave. Who is the one that sent the snakes? It was God. And who ultimately sent Jesus to the cross? It was God. Why? Because the wrath of God was being rightly and justly poured out onto the past, present, and future of humanity. And yet God could have saved all, but he has chosen to save son. Some he sent his son Jesus to die upon the cross to be the one that is high and lifted up and so that you and I would be humbled at the reality of our sin and not look to ourselves, not look to our work, but look to Jesus, be satisfied in Jesus. And what would happen? God's wrath would be satisfied in your place. That God's wrath would be satisfied in my place. That God would send wrath, yes, righteous, just wrath. And yet simultaneously, what does he do? He provides a provision. He provides a way out. See, brothers and sisters, our salvation comes not by being satisfied in our own obedience. Our, our salvation comes not by trusting in ourselves. Our salvation comes not by looking to ourselves or others. No, get this. Our salvation comes when we look to Jesus and realize the only person that needs to be satisfied is God. And the only one who can satisfy God is who? God. The only one that needs to be satisfied is God's wrath. And the only one that can satisfy God's wrath is God himself. See, God is going to use whatever means necessary. Some of you may go home and find some snakes at your house. God will use suffering. God will use pain. God will burn down your house. God will send a flood. God will send a tornado. God will have you to 
have a broken down car. It can be as simple as a hangnail to a piano falling on your head. And God is using all of those things in the midst of your pain and suffering, in the midst of being bit instantly. What do you look to first? It seems radical and foolish to look to that snake, doesn't it? It looks radical and foolish to, to look to Jesus. It, it, it doesn't seem to make logical sense. You're surrounded by snakes. You're, you're getting bit. And, and, and all of a sudden you're supposed to look at the snake on, the, on a pole. Or better yet, you're to, surrounded by sin. You're dabbling in sin. You're getting bit by sin. You're complaining against God. You're complaining against his provision. You're getting complaining against the journey that you are on in life. And it looks ridiculous to just look at Jesus and to hear someone say, just look at Jesus. But what kind of faith does it take to look at something ridiculous and abundant supernatural amount of faith in the midst of being bit. God wants you to trust him. The very trait that the people lacked is the very command that God was calling them to. Trust me. Trust me. In the midst of your greatest need, trust me. When suffering is at its worst, trust me. Trust me when death is looming. Trust me. Look to me. Be satisfied with me. See, all other religions are going to say, save yourself. And, and the gospel message is, is only Jesus can. I love this quote from John Piper. It says this, my point here is you will never feel this. You will never devote your, 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 your life to magnifying God by being satisfied in God until you see the ultimate essence of evil is your failure to be satisfied in God. Just wondering how many of you try to be good without any intention to this. You're fighting the battle at the level of deeds all the time. Well, I'm not supposed to do that. I should be doing that. More of that and less of that than Satan is laughing up your sleeve. That you're fighting on a front that can never succeed the battle. See, the battle is here. The battle is in your heart. It's really deep. Here is what you love, what you cherish, what you are satisfied by. What you, all of these things are, are here. Are you fighting the battle? That's the battle that gives rise to all that's good and kills all that's evil. So the reason at Passion, talking about he as the ultimate, or excuse me, talking about the ultimate essence of evil is because passion is about the majesty of God. You will never make much of the majesty of God until you know and hate that the ultimate essence of evil is preferring anything to God. At the cross, we see God's wrath and God's grace collide in death, in the death, in the burial, and in the resurrection of Jesus. The wrath of God that was sure to come 
the wrath of God that was sure to come to you, brothers and sisters. has been swallowed up by Jesus. It's been swallowed up by God himself. I wish there was some way that I could paint the severity of your sin and my sin. Apart from knowing Jesus, apart from looking to Jesus, what would truly be coming to us if we could merely get a glimpse of what hell, God's eternal wrath being poured out to you, if we could merely see that for a glimpse, oh, there would not be a dry eye in a place. We would not have to beg you to sing. We would not have to beg you to evangelize. We would not have to beg you to, to make disciples and to worship Jesus. There would be clapping. There would be rejoicing in here at the realization that all all of the wrath that was due to us has been swallowed up by him. You're not merely being saved from Satan. You are being saved from God by God. God's wrath has always been a source of simultaneously life for his people. And that is why we can sing till on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied for every sin on him was laid here in the death of Christ I live. What the bronze serpent foreshadowed is what Jesus accomplished. We will never be satisfied with God until we understand first that God is satisfied with Himself. God is most worshipped by us when we are most satisfied in Him. God is worshipped through our complete dependence on Him. And when we are willing to give up, get this, when you truly understand the beauty of that, then you will be willing and freely give up everything to know that Jesus, to be with that Jesus. Mission Church, we must fight the drift daily to look at Jesus. May we worship God. May we worship Jesus. Because there's a greater death coming than that of a snake bite. It is sin's deadly bite. And yet the antidote to that deadly bite is in nothing that you and I can accomplish. But it's been completely paid for in full by the person and work of Jesus. He is the answer. Get up every morning and fight to be satisfied in Jesus. Fight to be satisfied in Him. To long, hunger, thirst, declare, seek. Every day, Jesus, look to Him. Let's pray.